When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, fellow travelers. I'm Lori Gottlieb. I'm the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and I write the Dear Therapist Advice column for The Atlantic. And I'm Guy Winch. I'm the author of Emotional First Aid, and I write the Dear Guy advice column for TED. And this is Dear Therapists. Each week, we invite you into a session so you can learn more about yourself by hearing how we help other people come to understand themselves better and make changes in their lives. So sit back and welcome to today's session. This week, our fellow traveler struggles with the heartbreak of infertility and pregnancy loss. I had a really, really, really hard time with that loss. I was probably a month out from surgery when my brother and sister-in-law announced they were pregnant. It really kind of sucked the air out of me because I was like, oh, now she's going to be pregnant. And oh, we could have been pregnant together. And that really caused like a big friction in my relationship with my brother and sister-in-law because I just didn't want to be around them. First, a quick note. Dear Therapist is for informational purposes only. It does not constitute medical or psychological advice and is not a substitute for professional healthcare advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, mental health professional, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical or psychological condition. By submitting a letter, you are agreeing to let iHeartMedia use it in part or in full, and we may edit it for length and clarity. In the sessions you'll hear, all names have been changed for the privacy of our fellow travelers. Hey, Lori. Hey, Guy. So what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about pregnancy loss. And here's the letter we got. Dear therapists, I've been struggling with the pain of pregnancy loss and infertility for almost four years now. We were blessed with our first child five and a half years ago and had no trouble getting pregnant with her. I had a healthy pregnancy and birth. Since then, I've had an ectopic pregnancy resulting in losing a fallopian tube, a chemical pregnancy, and a miscarriage. All losses were early, but so painful. It's been two years since our last loss, and I haven't even been able to get pregnant, so now we're dealing with infertility. In the meantime, our daughter has asked so many times about siblings, and I know she would be a great big sister. Almost all of her friends have siblings. I struggle so much being surrounded by pregnant women, everywhere it feels like, and especially in this world of social media, every holiday means another round of pregnancy announcements. Right now, both of my sister-in-laws are pregnant, one with her fifth child and one with her third, and here I am, as barren as ever. We've cut plastic mostly out of our kitchen, I've met with a nutritionist, taken supplements, and I'm even doing acupuncture, and so someone else getting pregnant without all that feels especially defeating. I'm tired of everyone else's pregnancies affecting me so much. I was a person who loved pregnancy announcements before this. I don't want to keep saying, well, I'm happy for them, but sad for me. It feels so selfish. It also doesn't help that I constantly struggle with people automatically assuming pregnancy equals a baby in nine months. So much can happen. I've met women who've lost babies at every stage of pregnancy. I'm just really tired. Tired of trying to live in the present and also trying to have hope for a different future. I try to be happy with where I'm at. Some days I think I'm there. Other days I'm not. And some moments I just crumble. Please help. I feel so lost. Diane. Well, what Diane is describing is grief. And it's a really complicated kind of grief that she's dealing with. It's sort of an ambiguous grief because it's not like someone dies and there's the grieving. and 
people gather around and they're there to comfort you. It's often a silent loss, like with the loss of the pregnancies. It's ambiguous grief because you don't know when or if this thing is going to happen. So you're always every month that you get that pregnancy test, you're dealing with another loss. And then this question of what am I going to lose going forward? So I can understand why she's struggling so much with this. And I think what makes it more difficult is that she's right. When you lose pregnancies, the way she's lost them, there are a lot of people who shrug it off, who don't take it seriously. She didn't make the announcements probably, so a lot of people probably don't even know that those things happened. And yet she's walking around with one loss after another, after another, feeling absolutely bereft, but not able to get perhaps the social support, not able to really even explain to people why it's so painful, because some people will get it, some people won't. And having the constant, constant reminders around her, which is exactly what's so painful in these cases, that there's pregnancy all around, especially when you're cued into looking for it. And so just seeing it everywhere and not being able to complete it is just excruciating for her. And then on top of that, she feels like a bad person for feeling what are very normal reactions to the kind of loss that she's experiencing. So let's go talk to her and see what we can do to help. You're listening to Dear Therapists from iHeartRadio. We'll be back after a quick break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Dear Therapist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Dear Therapist. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lori Gottlieb. And I'm Guy Winch. And this is Dear Therapists. So, Diane, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, Diane. Hi. We'd like to hear a little of the backstory. Tell us a little bit about this journey that you've been on and how you're feeling about it right now. Yeah, so about five and a half years ago, I had my first daughter and had a really normal pregnancy. It was very easy to get pregnant. And I had a had a rough delivery, but still pretty good and kind of by any standard. And then really struggled hard with postpartum depression. I had a lot of a lot of trouble adjusting to life as a new mom, like just being needed a hundred percent of the time. I was trying to breastfeed and pump and I wasn't sleeping a lot. And so I had a a really, really rough transition. 
I always kind of knew I wanted multiple kids, but there was a while after that I was just like, I can't even imagine having more than one. I just, you know, needed to get through that period of time. And then even the early kind of toddler years were pretty hard. But when my daughter was about two, you know, we were pretty open to to trying for the next one and got pregnant fairly easily again and was really excited. But then I ended up going to the ER like a day or two later because I was just in so much pain. And I was in there and they did an alt, like an early kind of ultrasound. And I should have been about, I think it was like seven weeks or something. And whatever they were supposed to kind of see, they didn't see. And so then they were like, could be ectopic. It could be a miscarriage. It could just be that you're like earlier than you think and everything will be okay in a couple of weeks. Um, so it's very unsettling. I actually remember being at the hospital and my husband getting a text from his best friend and they said, we just found out we're having a boy today. And I was like, Ugh. wow, that could not be worse timing. <laughs> like I'm happy wow. for them, but I'm finding out that I could potentially be losing this child. So it was very up and down, very stressful. This was going on over the course of a few weeks where you didn't know if the pregnancy was viable. It was really kind of like a one to two week period um, and I was just in a lot of pain and they kept saying, well, if it gets to the point where it's so extreme, you you have to be doubled over, then go to the ER because then it's, you know, life-threatening. So it was just like really stressful because I kept thinking, okay, well, I'm in a lot of pain, but is this mean, is it like life-threatening? Is this, is this bad enough to go to the ER? So once they determined that it was ectopic, they gave me this medicine to help and then it, it, you know, it'll be good. We won't have to do surgery. And so I did that and was just still in so much pain. And the doctor was just like really confused because 90% chances should have worked. And was ultimately like, I, I don't wa want to do surgery if I don't have to, uh, because then there's always possibility of having to remove a tube if you, you know, do surgery. So after just being in a lot of pain and kind of the emotional effects of everything um, and having a two-year-old at this point, so trying to, you know, balance just the daily struggles of motherhood as is, I, we just like ended up saying, let's just do the surgery. And I remember the first thing I asked when I woke up was, did you save the tube? And they said, no, we had to take your, mm -hmm. your right tube out. And so I was just like, Ugh. and I, the doctor had said that doesn't half your chance of getting pregnant. It reduces it by like, I don't know, 30 to 40% or something. So after my surgery, and when I was finally just like not in so much physical pain, I really felt started feeling the emotional pain of of losing this pregnancy, of losing this child. And I had a very, very hard time with it. During this time that you were going through all of this, what was going on between you and your husband? How were you both dealing with it? He was very supportive in just kind of being there with me, for me. We're lucky that we live near family. So we had a, a lot of times that like my parents would just take our daughter. So he was able to be there with me for the surgery and everything. He's just not a talker. He's not a sharer of feelings. So I don't think he always necessarily knows how to express himself, even though he was really there physically and provided a lot of that physical support and, you know, let me cry on him kind of emotionally and things like that. It, it did still feel very isolating. When you lost the pregnancy and then found out that you lost the fallopian tube as well, did he ever share with you anything about how he felt about what was going on? No, I mean, I remember asking him, like, are you sad about this? You know, and he was like, yeah, I'm sad. Like, he was sad that I was so sad. So he always said, I, I am sad to see you so sad. And I'm sad that this is, you know, causing you so much pain physically and emotionally. Having it like happen in your body, it's very, very personal. And I felt like 
I did something to fail this child. Like I did something to fail the pregnancy. I caused it. Why couldn't my body sustain it? Can can we go back for a minute? I just want to ask you about the postpartum depression. May I ask if you were treated for it? How long you had it? How your husband was during that? Yeah, I was treated for it. It was very difficult for me to find help, which was very frustrating. I went very fast into a very dark place and I ended up in the ER and they wanted to admit me. And I said, well, I really want to breastfeed my child. I really want to be with my child. And they were like, you can't be. And I didn't end up going in at that point. And then we tried to call like a woman's center that was kind of nearby, like a woman's mental health center. They said like, are you a harm to yourself, to your child or somebody else? And I said, no. And they said, well, you don't qualify. And I was like, I can't be alone with my child. I can't like think straight. Like I have these bad thoughts, but I'm not going to like do anything. And then I try to go to my OB and I had already been on medicine for like anxiety prior to pregnancy. And so I was on that medicine. And so the OB said, well, I can't prescribe anything else because that's compounding and I'm not qualified. And uh, (laughs) you guys are in the profession, so you know this, but you try to call a psychiatrist and they're like we can see you in six to eight weeks. And you're like, no, I need something now. I need something today. I basically ended up finally at my primary care physician and they did prescribe me Wellbutrin to go with my, I think I was so loved. And thankfully that was finally the like combination that worked, but it was a very, very long few weeks. My mom was only supposed to, we lived like four hours away from our parents at this time. So she was going to stay for like a week after the baby was born to help. And she was there almost six weeks because I was just like in such a bad place. And my husband was absolutely amazing at just like caring for us, for all of us. You said Diane, that you had a traumatic birth and you kind of skipped over that. Sometimes people experience postpartum depression because they have a history of depression. Sounds like you have a history of anxiety. Sometimes that can be compounded by having a traumatic birth. And then when it turns out okay, often people ignore that. They say, oh, look, you got a healthy baby and now everything's fine and congratulations and it's amazing. And you're like, I'm not feeling amazing. I'm overwhelmed. I just had a traumatic birth. I'm adjusting to this new role. Were you able to talk with anybody about the traumatic birth and the impact that it had on you? Or did people just kind of ignore that and you went home and everyone acted like everything was great? Yeah, I guess I didn't really have a chance to process it at all. I almost feel bad saying it was traumatic because it was, it was traumatic for me, I guess, but like in the grand scheme of births, it was, it was not traumatic. If you were not minimizing it, can you tell us what was traumatic about it for you? It was so long. It it was the most mentally challenging thing I've ever had to do. I was very set on doing an all natural birth. And I had like taken classes and and done all this stuff. And it was basically like three days of on and off labor, like hard enough labor that I'd have to get down on the floor and, you know, breathe through it. Like at the end of the day, I was able to have a, a natural birth, but like I thought I was dying. I wanted to go to sleep. I at one point was like, just cut this baby out of me. Like I was just absolutely exhausted by the time she was finally born. I had no energy left in me. And so I just kept saying like, I just want her to be born so I can sleep. And like, that's the biggest joke of all, because when you have a newborn, you don't sleep. You wanted her to be born so that someone could then take care of you because you'd just been through all of this. And instead it was, oh, I have to take care of this baby. Yeah, exactly. And And again, like, I think a lot of it was pressure I put on myself. Like I was so intent on, I'm going to exclusively breastfeed until she's four years old. 
And, you know, 24 hours later in the hospital, she's screaming and crying and and she's not getting food. And the nurse is like, you need to give her formula and I'm crying. And, and my husband's like, just give her the bottle, you know? And so I was putting all this pressure on myself. Like now I'm a horrible mother because this class I took told me, and now I'm giving her poison and, and all this stuff. And so just started out in this like whirlwind, but then it is hard because I will say that I also felt very empowered. Like the fact that I was able to have her all naturally and the fact that I was able to complete that process. So it felt empowering, but then it was just also so overwhelming. And the fact that somebody handed me a child and was like, now you need to make every decision for them. And I I remember saying to my friend, like, can somebody give me a manual? I will follow it. I will do exactly what they say. I will feed her this much. I will do this. But trying to figure it all out myself is very overwhelming. Yeah. So Dave was very supportive of me again, but I think just didn't understand why I was holding on so tightly to these things. Like he was sort of like, if it's so hard for her to eat, it's really okay if we just give her formula. He didn't understand what it represented for you because there's so much conflicting information out there and new mothers are told all kinds of things in very absolute Mm -hmm. terms. This is toxic. This is poison. This will hurt your baby. Mm -hmm. This will hurt their development. And so I think that maybe he didn't understand that giving her formula represented something for you, whether it was accurate or not. Correct. Yeah, that's a good assessment. There's this concept in psychology called good enough parenting or good enough mothering. And the idea of the concept is that it's impossible to be a perfect parent. Really, the bar is, can you be good enough? And I'm, I'm saying that because I'm wondering if you were aware at the time that you were putting a lot of pressure and expectation on yourself to do things, not just a certain way, but the correct right way. Yeah, I don't think I realized how entrenched in it that I really was at the time. You're saying that six weeks after the birth is when your mom kind of went back home. So you were doing a little better in terms of the postpartum depression. How much were you struggling emotionally in that first year or four years even? It was challenging, especially that first year. We we lived about four hours away from our family. So, well, I worked full time, but three days I worked at home with her. And she was not a napper. She would maybe nap for like 20 minutes at a time. And so it was very, very stressful because I I just felt like I couldn't do anything well. I couldn't parent well. I couldn't work well. I couldn't wife well. (laughs) Almost six years later, thinking back on it, like maybe she wasn't so high needs. Maybe I just had a lot of trouble adjusting. And it's also true that babies have different temperaments. And so sometimes you'll see other mothers when you're a new mother and they're like, my baby sleeps all the time and Mm -hmm. my baby's so calm. And it just makes you feel like something is your fault that probably isn't. That's true too. You said that during that time, you started to think, I can't do this again. I'm not sure that I want to have another kid. So when did that shift for you where you decided I would really like to have another kid. And how did those conversations go with your husband? Tell us more about what the plan was between the two of you before you had your first child. I always always said I wanted four kids. Um, And he always said, I mean, two is good, I think. (laughs) After she was about a year and a half, we were back in the same city as our family. But still kind of like, okay, well, this is kind of a good time to start thinking about it because you want him to be three years apart, you know, that ideal age. (laughs) Who was bringing that up? Was it your husband who said, let's start thinking about this? Or was it you? And did your husband ever say to you, you know, I would be sad if we didn't try to have another kid? I guess we didn't have a specific conversation about it. I think it was just more a sense of, we're just open to it, kind of, if it happens. Like, we're not going to really try, try, but we're open to it. So there wasn't a conversation with your husband where he said, I know you've had a really rough time. How are you feeling about the idea of having more no, kids? No, because I wanted, I, I was like, yeah, I want more. 
even though I didn't really feel settled with one, I felt like it was time to have two. It's the time so that they'll be close enough in age where they can play together. You keep talking about the time, but again, it sounds like the conversation never happened, that this has been a really stressful year and a half. You know, at one point you felt like you didn't think you could do this again. And how are you feeling about it now? That conversation between you and your husband didn't happen. No, not a not officially. The thing about the time to me is another example of you going by the, this would be ideal. You said three years is ideal and it's fine as a goal, as a rough guideline, but there's a way in which you internalize these quote unquote ideals that you really set the expectation that it has to happen then. And if it doesn't, it means that I'm not doing something right or my body isn't doing something right. And it sounds like you were even saying yes to trying at that time because of the ideal rather than because it felt like this was the right time for you. Yeah, I remember thinking, I know people who have had trouble. And so in case I have trouble, I would rather start earlier. And then you got pregnant right away with that pregnancy that you told us about. Yeah. So I got pregnant right away. Again, we weren't super trying. We were just open to it. And I was like, wow. Uh, I remember being really nervous, you know, when we first found out. But then I was excited and I was like, oh, this will be really great. And ended up kind of telling my parents earlier than I thought because just like circumstance. And I even went out and got like a big sister shirt for our daughter. And took pictures with her in it. And I was like, oh, this will be a cute way to announce it. And then it was like a couple days later that all my cramping started and everything Mm. happened. And then there were two other losses that happened after that one. Yeah. So after my ectopic, I had a really, really, really hard time with that loss. I was probably a month out from surgery when my brother and sister-in-law announced they were pregnant. So, and I'm really close to my brother, to that brother especially. And it really kind of sucked the air out of me because I was like, oh, now she's going to be pregnant over Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I was going to be pregnant over Thanksgiving and Christmas. And, oh, we could have been pregnant together and all this stuff. So that was really hard. And that really caused like a big friction in my relationship with my brother and sister-in-law because I just didn't want to be around them. I just, I needed space. I needed to separate. I actually started going to loss groups after that. And it was so nice to not be alone, but it was also hard because I started finding out all of the ways you could lose a child. So before I knew about this many ways to lose a child, and now I was like, oh, wow, it can really happen at 40 weeks. You can lose a child. Everything can be fine one day and the next day it can't be. Yeah, that's not necessarily great information for somebody who's struggling with anxiety. Exactly. And then I was feeling guilty because a lot of these groups I went to, they didn't have any children. And so then I was like, well, at least I have one. And So what you're doing there is you're doing the comparative loss game where you feel like I don't deserve to feel the depth of the loss that I'm feeling because look what happened to this person. They lost their baby at 38 weeks. And for me, it was seven weeks. Or I already have a child and they don't have a child. So my loss isn't as intense as their loss. And people do that all the time. And I think that ties into this, what Guy was talking about earlier, about on the one hand, you perceive everything that goes wrong as a personal failure of yours. And on the other hand, you feel like, oh, but, you know, I really have it good. So I can't really experience this loss and I need to kind of just buck up and be happy for my brother when he announces the pregnancy. Did your brother know what you had been through? Yes, and this is what made it even harder. And my brother is super open about things. And so he was even open with me when I was going through it to say, like, oh, well, we want another one, but it's going to be a while. It's definitely going to be a while until we have another one. So in my mind, I was like, okay, good. I'm not going to have to deal with any pregnant family members for a while. And also I shared with him about how hard it was. And he goes, well, a lot of people have miscarriages. It's pretty common. 
And so it felt very mm. dismissed and very invalidated. And then a week later, or not probably not a week later, but a couple of weeks later is when he shared that they were pregnant. And and then couldn't understand why, you know, I needed more than a day to process it and was very hurt about the fact that I didn't want to see them. And so it just made it hard. And has that relationship been repaired since then? It has made very helpful by the fact that his oldest daughter and my daughter are a year apart and they're like best friends. And so it sort of forced me to be like, well, I want my daughter to see her cousin and have that relationship And then also once my nephew was born, it was easier to be around him and to really just love and adore him and say, it's not his fault. It's not, you know, he's a beautiful gift and he's here and it's, you know, a wonderful addition to our family. And, you know, they recently announced that they're pregnant with their third. So, um, and here I am still barren as ever. So I'm like, wow, they've had three children and I just have one. <laughs> In this time amount, I've just had one. That sounds so painful and you're sort of laughing through it. But the way that you talk about it is, well, I'm, here I am, I'm barren. As if it's your fault or you have any control over this. Again, going back to that perception as this being a personal failure of yours. And I think that just adds to the pain. The pain is going to be there. But when you frame it that way, I think you're layering more pain on top of the already existing pain. Yeah, part of why, why I wrote to you guys, because it's like, I don't even know how to process it all. Well, in part, because it's been such a series of trauma and loss the birth being really difficult, the postpartum depression, struggling to get help, but really not finding the help that you needed, and then struggling for so long afterwards even, and then you have that other pregnancy, the ectopic pregnancy, and all the trauma of that, and the incredible pain that you were in, and that was one thing after the other, and then getting that text when you were in the ER, and then, in any event, it sounds like it's been quite relentless. And so, in part, it's hard to make sense of things when you're still in them. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing about this kind of loss is that you have to face it every day in the sense of you walk out onto the street and there are babies and there are pregnant women and you're walking down the aisles of Target and you think you're just going for the things that you need, but oop, there's the diaper aisle and look at these women there and you want to, or maybe you do burst into tears in public. And nobody knows this internal struggle that you're experiencing. And I don't know if people at work know what's going on with you, if other friends know what's going on with you, if it's just your family. But often people don't realize that even though you are trying to manage and get through your days, that reminders of this pop up all the time. An ad will pop up on your computer for baby products. Guy used the word relentless. And I think it is relentless. And there's that, the silence of it, because a lot of people don't know, it's not visible what you're going through. And then there's the, again, the ambiguous grief of like, maybe this month, oh no, not this month, it didn't happen. Um, will it ever happen? So am I grieving that I'm never going to have a second child or am I grieving the loss that's right in front of me right now that this this month I'm not having a second child? Yeah, I mean all those things. We had to wait a while after I had to wait like at least six months after my surgery. And then I was able to get pregnant again and was happy about it. But next day I started bleeding. Then we have to do this, you know, procedure to mm. suck out the tissue. And it, so not even that was like a simple process. It was like, okay, is this my life? But I was like, I can't, this can't happen more than twice. And so it was maybe not even six weeks later that I found out I was pregnant again. And so I was very excited and like, I felt really confident this time. And I actually started getting like nauseous the next week and, and really, really tired and just really had a lot of symptoms of, of pregnancy and went to get my blood work done. And they just said, well, it's kind of uncertain why don't you come back? And it was scheduled for New Year's Eve. So it was really hard because I had to go through Christmas 
and everything, like not telling anybody. And so we went for the ultrasound on New Year's Eve and they just said, I'm sorry, you know, the baby stopped growing. And I, you know, I was devastated and I cried. And my husband got like, he looked like he was really upset. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's finally showing emotion. The doctor left the room or whatever. But he literally said to me, you have one at home, right? And I said, yes. And he goes, you'll have three kids before you know it. And I was like, what? This is so invalidating and so upsetting. And and then, they, you know, they go, you can let yourself out the back door because nobody wants a crying person to walk through the waiting room. And so you literally have to go out the back door to the parking garage. And so it just felt very like, this is not happening again. Like, how am I going to get through this? Like, this feels absolutely impossible. How am I going to even try again? Because how could I ever go through this again? And that also just absolutely broke me. So you get this devastating news. Then, you know, you have to go through a devastating medical procedure, which can be even more painful emotionally because of it. And you're thinking, I can't, I can't go through this again. I'm not sure how I'm getting through it this time. Were you able to verbalize that to your husband? Was he able to be there for you and understand the depth of your despair at that moment? In some ways, yes. I mean, he, he said, I'm sad. You know, I wanted this baby. But like, and this is going to sound bad, but I was just like, why, why doesn't this hurt you more? Why isn't this more painful for you? Hmm. What are the discussions like between the two of you now about what your options are? Well, I, you know, we just talked about this the other day because I said, do you even want a second one? Because I feel like I'm pushing harder than you are. He said, you are pushing harder, but I do want another one. Do you know if he has any fears about what it might be like to try again, given what you both have been through? I don't know. I should ask him that. Is there a plan between the two of you? Like, if we keep trying after this many months, we are willing to try other measures or other ideas, or we're going to say, we're going to kind of close the book on this if it doesn't happen after a certain amount of time. And are you two on the same page? Because often what happens is one person feels like I'm willing to do this and the other person feels like I've had enough. Where are the two of you? Do you even know? I don't know. And this is so sad for me. Like, You don't know where you are or you don't know where he is or you don't know both? Both. I feel like I don't know how to talk to him about it because what we've talked about has just sort of been like, well, let's just try this now and see if it works. Like, at what point do I just say, like, one is enough? And like, I hate saying that because my daughter is enough. And so uh, I struggle with this. It can be both and that your daughter is enough and you want a second child. Mm hmm. I understand you have these discussions with your husband occasionally, certainly when stuff happens. How much is it in the air between you in the day-to-day? -day? How much is it in your head in the day-to-day -day versus his? And how much is it hovering between you? Right now, I would say it's a huge part of where I'm at. I take like 15 supplements a day at this point, and he's taking supplements. And I'm like, did you take your supplements? And then I feel bad about that. And sometimes I'm like, well, can you just drink less? Like, so that, like, are, do you care about this? Like, what does he say when you, when you ask him, do you care about this? And when, when you feel like you have to be the person who reminds him to do these things that might help increase your chances of having a child? He gets mad. Like, of course I do. Of course I care. It's so hard. For him, it sounds like it's a little bit more sporadic. He might be taking supplements every morning, but he's not living it every minute, mm -hmm. perhaps the way you are. Does he talk to you about that, about whether is he concerned that you're too much in it too much of the time 
is he expressed any concern about you being able to be fully present in the lives that you have? Yeah. Like, I think he wishes I could just, like, let go and just not be so anxious about things. What is the state of the couplehood? And how are you doing together as a married couple with a with a young daughter? Yeah, I feel like we're doing good. But even like he just started a new job that's like really stressful. And so the other day I was like, oh, do you just feel overwhelmed? And he goes, no, I don't get overwhelmed. I'm just figuring it out. And I'm like, I'm always overwhelmed. Like, I don't know. But that right there might be might be in a microcosm, the way that the two of you are dealing with this pregnancy issue. That he does feel things. He does have anxiety or sadness or at times he might have been devastated. But the way that he manages those feelings is different from the way that you do. And it doesn't mean one is better than the other. It just means that sometimes couples can feel like, well, why aren't you feeling anything about this? And he might be feeling a lot about it, but what he does with those feelings is a little bit different. And so you don't see it in the same way. Yeah. Like, how do I get him to acknowledge his feelings? I think from what you're describing, what he does is he can compartmentalize. What that means is that what you put aside is the, not the knowledge of what happened, but the emotion attached to it. You can detach from that feeling, have the awareness, but but really kind of segment the feeling away to a certain extent. And I think that you chose him perhaps for this reason, because you are somebody who deals with a lot of anxiety, but you chose somebody rock solid. You chose somebody who has these emotions, but manages them in a way that he's like steady Eddie all the time. And you are somebody who tends to be anxious. And so it, it's actually really useful to be with someone who's very steady, because then it doesn't compound the anxiety. When two people get anxious at the same time, they can really feed into one another. And I do want to ask you, though, are you aware of the severity of the anxiety that you have? Are you treating it still? I am still taking medicine for it, but I think it's gotten worse. I've had a few people say like, oh, you need to talk to somebody about, you know, your struggles and things like that. One of the the big things I'm struggling with is just managing, like, I almost just wish I could be ha- like, just oh, I'm just going to have one and then just be done so that I don't have to like, you know, worry about all this stuff and and have it be so consuming. But like, I can't get it out of my mind that like, I don't necessarily feel like our family's complete. And I do, there is like hope there that maybe, maybe it's not. And, but then I also know that if I do get that positive pregnancy test, that that's, only the beginning. And then like, there's nine months of, of different anxiety. I think what you're talking about is that you're in this situation where you feel like you have so little control, not only of whether you get pregnant or whether the pregnancy is viable or whether the pregnancy results in a healthy baby, um, but also in terms of what happens when you wake up in the morning and what's going to pop up on your screen and what you're going to see on Facebook and who's going to announce a new pregnancy. So all of that feels very unpredictable and out of your control. But I think there are certain things that you do have control over. Do I want to know if someone's pregnant or do I want to know later on when they're farther along? Or maybe an email would be better for me because I don't want to have to respond in that moment. It's excruciating to have to respond in that moment. It's like, I hear this from single people a lot where they say, you know, my friend called me and she told me she got engaged and I was supposed to be so happy. And it was the third person that month who told me they were engaged. The same thing. And so maybe the parts that you have control over are the parts that I think are important to focus on. How do I deal with going out in the world and the inevitable injuries that I'm going to experience as I go through my day? What parts of that might I ask something from people around me to help me through this? And so before we get to the advice, we just had one last thing we wanted to ask about, which is tell us a little bit about your daughter and what her experience of all of this is. 
I am so grateful that she was so young when I had my first loss and I was trying to process it so much. But I mean, I haven't been shy. Like I, you know, I believe that my losses are angels and that they're, you know, they're in heaven. And so she's asked about siblings before and I've told her, oh, you have brothers and sisters in heaven. So in the fall, we lost our first pet, our first um, pet that we had together. And she was kind of like mine before we got married. And so it was very, very hard on all of us. But my husband especially was like outwardly crying for the first time in a long time. And my one of my first thoughts was, how dare you get this upset about our cat when you didn't even cry this much about our children? And then I felt bad for feeling like that and was kind of just like, well, at least it feels nice not to grieve alone. Sometimes in couples, when one of them sees the other one is really, really struggling, they really button up their emotions because it's difficult for two people to go to pieces at the same time. And it's possible that with the cat, he saw that you were managing it better and therefore he allowed himself to access his feelings a little bit more. And his concern for you in the other cases of losing the pregnancies, his concern for you didn't allow him to access his own feelings. So it wasn't a statement about what he was grieving more. It was a statement about where he felt he had room to access those feelings. And it's also possible that because he felt like he had permission to grieve, that he wasn't just grieving the cat that it was complicated and that he was grieving the cat and he was grieving all the other losses that he had held inside for all this time. But you don't know because the two of you haven't really talked about it. So Diane, you've been through a lot and it has touched everyone in the family. And we do have some advice that we'd like you to try this week. And the first part is that something that really feeds anxiety is a sense of lack of control. And there's a lot that we don't have control over in life, but there are some things that we do. And one of the ways that we think you might feel like you have a little more control in this situation is to have a plan that you and your husband agree upon. And so we'd like you to sit down with your husband and have a real direct conversation about what is our plan given where we are now? And very specifically, are we willing to try one round of IVF? Are we willing to try none? Are we willing to try two? What would be our timetable on that? How long are we going to continue the acupuncture and the supplements? Are we going to consider adoption or a surrogate or a donor? Are we going to keep trying naturally and for how long? So that you're not living in the maybe and in the, well, we'll just kind of leave it up to something out there, but that we're taking action with an agreed upon plan. And then, you know, we'll see what happens. We don't have control over that, but we do have control over the plan. And that's something you can come up with together in terms of what you're both comfortable with, where you're both at emotionally, physically, fatigue-wise at this point. How do you recommend having him think about it? Because I feel like he's just going to say, we'll figure it out, or... And you'll say, actually, as you know, I struggle with anxiety, Dave, and having this uncertainty is probably not best for me. And as much as I would like to just figure it out and take it step by step, I think it would be better for both of us if we had an idea that had parameters. So we have a sense, so we're not spending the next five, 10 years in this still with uncertainty. So we want you to first have that conversation with your husband. And then we want you to have one more conversation with him. And it's really an opener to getting the two of you to be able to start talking on a deeper level about what you've both been through so that it doesn't bleed into the future when you don't deal with it. And 
we want you to go back to the cat dying. And we want you to tell Dave that even though at the time you had a certain reaction to it, that you've really reflected on that and that you think it's really beautiful that he was able to express his grief and loss over the cat. And it made you feel so much closer to him to see him really be able to express his grief. And that you have a suspicion that maybe he's been holding some of his grief back around the pregnancy losses because your grief has been so big. And that you want to let him know that you would like to open that door and that you are able to handle whatever he's feeling, whatever grief he's experiencing, so that it doesn't become a dynamic between you where you're the one who gets to express grief and he has to be the steady Eddie. That you can be the steady Eddie at times and he's the one who's kind of falling apart. And you want to let him know that you can be that person for him and and that you realize that when you saw him grieving over the cat. You were so moved by it. It made you feel so much more contained seeing that he was experiencing something and you could be there for him. We have two more quick pieces of advice. One about your daughter. We think that the conversations that you've been having with her around the extra sibling, they've been a little painful for you, obviously, but we think they've been a little heavy for her because she's just saying, hey, this would be fun. Another baby brother or sister, kind of like having a puppy. It's like just fun. They don't realize that's a lot of work, that puppy and that little baby brother and sister. So we'd like to suggest that when she brings it up again, and she probably will, that you say to her, you know what? We don't know if we're going to have another baby, but you know what we do know? That our family is great as it is. And you know what we do know? That we love each other very much, the three of us already. So maybe we'll get an extra member of the family. Maybe we won't. But we can be so happy, just the three of us. That's the most important part. And I see that you're tearing up when I say that. Yeah. Can you tell me what you're feeling? Yeah, because we are a beautiful family and she's so important to us and brings us so much joy. And I just want her to always know that she's enough. Great. We also think if she has friends who don't have siblings, them's some good playdates to arrange, perhaps, so she can see that that's something that's not uncommon. It's almost like the way that when you walk out into the world, you see pregnant women and other women with babies. I think that the way that it's been framed in your family, that's what she sees when she goes out. And you said, you kept correcting yourself, you said, all of her friends have, oh, well, I mean, most of her friends have siblings. So there are other families that have one child. And it would be helpful, I think, for her to have some playdates with them. Not that you won't comment on it. You're not going to say, look, they only have one child. You're just going to expose her to different kinds of families so that she understands that their families come in all shapes and sizes. The last piece of advice is that we would like you to get a little bit more informed about anxiety. I think you know quite a bit, but I think there's more for you to know because it's something that you're dealing with quite significantly. And I think that you need to read something, a book such as The Anxiety Toolkit by Dr. Alice Boys, which is a very practical toolkit to deal with anxiety. It explains what goes on, but it gives you some tools and strategies. And we'd like you to find two tools or techniques that you can tell us about using and that you start to implement in your life. Does that sound okay? Yeah, I was diagnosed with anxiety when I was in eighth grade. So I feel like I've been learning about it forever. But I think just it as it as like I evolve, so does it. So I probably just need new, new ways of coping with like the new things I'm feeling. It was a pleasure talking to you. And, you know, you, you've been through a lot 
and we both really, really wish the best for you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time, and it was great seeing your faces, too. I wish I could talk to you every week. I'm actually quite hopeful that Diane will be able to follow through on all the tasks we gave her. I'm trying to think if we've ever given somebody that many tasks, even though some of them were small. It was quite a, it's quite a bit that we've given her to do. Right. We gave her, we gave her three, but the first one had a two-parter. So. Right. So that was a lot to do, but I'm, I, I have a lot of faith in her. I think she's really eager to change her situation, at least emotionally, given how she's really been through so much already. Yeah. And I think the important point is that we're not doing what I think a lot of people do, which is telling her not to feel what she's feeling. We're saying, we want to help you cope with what you're feeling. And we want to help the two of you as a couple who've been through this together, cope with what you're feeling and as a family, indeed, with her daughter as well. Absolutely. You're listening to Dear Therapist from iHeartRadio. We'll be back after a short break. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we heard from Diane and we had given her a lot of homework. I'm curious to see how that went. Hi, Lori and Guy. It's Diane. I just wanted to update you about my week. Um, it was a busy week uh, with lots to do, but I you know, told my husband that I wanted to have these conversations about these specific things. And we sat down and were able to just really talk openly and honestly about how we were feeling about everything. I apologized for really not having a conversation sooner about wanting to be very intentional about trying again. And, you know, before we started doing the supplements and the acupuncture, that was something I had sort of just taken on by myself. And that was honestly, obviously a conversation we we really needed to have together. And then we kind of came up with a plan going forward of, you know, how long we were going to try everything and what the next steps were. We talked about being open to adoption and, you know, research different options and and talk to different agencies and things like that. So that was exciting. I'm very hopeful going forward and it really helped us establish a great path forward for communications like this. So I just kind of rolled the second conversation up into that first one. And we talked about, you know, our previous losses and and everything like that. So it was really nice to really talk about that 
um, now that we're kind of more removed from it. And, you know, talk about our feelings about that. And then I also talked to our daughter um, and and emphasized again that we are a complete family, just the three of us. And she, she just said, I know, but I really want a little brother. So um, I think she's not uh, quite <laughs> quite there yet either. But I'm just going to keep telling her that, you know, maybe one day she'll have a little brother or sister and maybe she won't. But no matter what, we're just so grateful that we have her. I also ordered the Anxiety Toolkit by Alice Boys that Guy recommended. And I'm about 20 pages in. Um, Even this soon in the book, it's already really opened my eyes to how much anxiety permeates my life. I'm really glad that that you guys opened my eyes back up to, to making that front and center because it is front and center. And now I'm able to kind of address that. So just sort of looking ahead at the chapters on paralyzing perfectionism and rumination. I know that just being aware of the fact that I'm doing it, that I'm spending time ruminating and that I'm kind of getting in my own way, I think is going to really help me move forward. And I haven't tried anything specifically since um, I just kind of got started, but I'm very excited about really getting into it and trying these strategies. And I also got a few um, recommendations for therapists when I went to see my acupuncturist today. So excited to reach out to them and, and hopefully continue this weekly. So thank you so much. Um, you guys made such a big difference on many parts of my life. And I'm very hopeful going forward. So sometimes when there's a big issue going on, it tends to mask the other things that really need to be addressed. And what was so great about what Diane did this week was she really got in there and said, I need to talk about the communication with my husband. And she hadn't really dealt with her anxiety that had been a lifelong issue with her. They were so focused on having a baby that they didn't realize that there were other things that also needed to be addressed. And what I loved was that when she told us about telling her daughter, hey, we're a complete family, you might have a little brother or sister, or you might not. And her daughter was saying, yeah, I know, but I really want a little brother. That was the kind of thing that would have made her very upset before. And she said it with a a laugh, a smile in her voice, like, oh, you know, five-year-olds, they just want the little sibling. There was already some emotional distance that she had from that issue. Uh, And I think that when you tackle things and you really get into the feelings and you really talk about them in a complete way, it actually eases the feelings you have about things rather than exacerbates them. And, And I'm so glad that that's happened here. It really does. And I'm so glad that she and her husband have begun to talk about the loss and the roller coaster that they've been on and the grief and how it affects them individually. I don't think that they've been able to really share their feelings with each other and they've kind of tiptoed around that. And so I think this is going to be really helpful as they continue on whatever path and that they have a path now that they're starting to say, wait, what is the plan here so that we aren't in limbo forever? And what makes that plan work? is that they're making it together. Next week, we'll get updates from last season's sessions to find out how our advice worked out a year later. It's made me realize how hard I am on myself. And I remember Laurie and Guy saying something about me not feeling like I was inherently lovable as I am. And I'm slowly beginning to realize that I don't need to perform to be loved. Hey, fellow travelers. If you're enjoying our podcast each week, don't forget to subscribe for free so that you don't miss any episodes. And please help support Dear Therapists by telling your friends about it and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews really help people to find the show. You can also find us both online. I'm at lauriegottlieb.com and you can follow me on Twitter at lauriegottlieb1 or on Instagram at lauriegottlieb underscore author. And I'm at guywinch.com 
and on Twitter and Instagram at GuyWitch. If you have a dilemma you'd like to discuss with us, big or small, email us at laurieandguy at iheartmedia.com. Our executive producer is Noel Brown. We're produced and edited by Mike Johns, Josh Fisher, and Chris Childs. Our interns are Dorit Corwin and Silver Lifton. Special thanks to Allison Wright and to our podcast fairy godmother, Katie Couric. We can't wait to see you at next week's session. Dear Therapists is a production of iHeartRadio. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.